Well, thank you. Take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6 today. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we're about halfway through the book now as we're marching our way through this very profound, difficult in many ways, uh, but a book that causes us to think and ponder the things that matter. One of the most famous and uh, celebrated poets in English literature was a fellow by the name of Lord Byron who uh, did his work in the early 1800s. But he was, uh, although he had everything in life that anybody could ever want, uh, he was a man who was very miserable in his existence, his life. On his 33rd birthday, he decided to write a little ditty about himself. He said, through life's uh, life's dull road, so dim and dirty, I have dragged to three and thirty. What have these years left me? Nothing except 33. So that was his existence. Uh, Didn't get any better. Three years later, he wrote on his 36th birthday these words, My days are in the yellow leaf. The flower and the fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. (laughs) That was his testimony on life. Uh, He died before that poem was actually published in his 36th, before he was a little after 36 years old. A miserable and broken man. Uh, He said, though, with with great eloquence, what many people have experienced, and that is that that life simply has not lived up to its billing, that uh, what what he expected in life didn't come about, and uh, that's because he expected the wrong things. He, he, like many others, thought that, uh, you know, if you had certain things, if you had certain means of happiness, certain wealth, certain this, that, or the other, you'll be happy, and so he pursued those things but didn't find happiness. Uh, He didn't realize that those were not the things designed to bring fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness. He didn't live biblically. Biblically is to live in reality, is to live as God designed life to be lived. Uh, To live anything else, to live unbiblically, is to live a lie. And yet the majority of people, the great majority of people throughout time are living a lie. They don't want to accept the reality that God gives us in His Word. And they do not want to accept what their own experience is telling them about the life they're living here on this planet. Now Solomon doesn't leave us there. Solomon says, life under the sun, remember that's one of his favorite lines throughout the book, life under the sun. Life under the sun is is all all but designed to leave us empty and wanting more. And those that live life under the sun, those disconnected from God, living on this planet, but disconnected from the, the giver of life, the creator of life, will find them their lives much like he defines it here in the book of Ecclesiastes, and much as Lord Byron found in his own life as well. Most people live a lie, but they don't know they live a lie. Solomon is dismantling lies throughout this book. There's two lies that he's going to deal with in the next two chapters. Chapter 6, he deals with the lie that prosperity and wealth and riches are the key to happiness or that they're necessarily good. Solomon's experience and what he gives us through the inspired writing here is that the things and stuff that we have often leave us more empty than when we started. They're not designed, they're not meant to give us happiness and fulfillment. And there's a second lie he's going to look at in chapter 7, and that is that adversity and sadness and trouble and hard times are necessarily bad. Uh, He turns uh, our thinking on its head and says often the very difficult times of life, the hardest times of life, are the times when God gets our attention, takes us to a level of maturity we didn't have before, and in the long run gives us the better life. So he, he turns on two different lies here. Now we're going to look at the first one today, the, the next one next week, but the lie that we're looking at today 
is concerning prosperity. We're going to go to school. So I know all of you are just ready to go to school, right? So we're going to go to school today. As we go to school, we're going to be looking at some lessons about life. We're going to go to the school of life and look at some lessons on the subject of satisfaction. And there's going to be three different lessons that uh, Solomon wants to give us, and there will be a test at the end of each lesson. So be ready to take the test. Lesson number one, things and stuff, we used the word stuff last week, remember? Things and stuff cannot satisfy. Now we start with verse one of chapter six, and we know we're in trouble right off the bat. He says, there is an evil which I've seen under the sun, which is prevalent among men. Now, he's already told us all sorts of awful things throughout the book so far, and now he's warning us, I'm bringing something else to your attention. It's an evil thing, and it's a common thing. It's prevalent among people. This is what people uh, all over the planet believe, and it's a great evil. So he's going to unpack that for us, but he gets our attention right off the back. Now, just summarizing before we look at the details, he's going to tell us, as I've already said, that things, prosperity, and stuff can never satisfy the soul. That's going to be the lesson. And, and you say, well, I, I already know that. I've, I've heard that all my life. I, I could mouth that. Matter of fact, if I were to ask any of you individually, do you believe that things and finances and so forth will, will bring great satisfaction in your life? And that's what you should be living for. Almost everybody in the room would say no. You know, you've already got that down. And yet, why don't we really believe that? If we really believe that, why would we live the way we often live as if the end game is finances and prosperity? Why do we really seem to believe that that is what is going to give us uh, the, the life that we want to have? Even Christians who should know better find that most of their decisions are based on finances. It's, it, it, it determined the school we go to, the, the major that we take, uh, the jobs that we have, the, the location where we live. All sorts of things are wrapped around finances as the number one motivator. And all of us can identify with that. But let's turn to what the inspired preacher tells us about these things, about this subject. And as we do, we'll notice he's going to be looking at a story of a very miserable man in verse 2, and perhaps another miserable man in verse 3. It doesn't look like the same man, so a couple of miserable guys here. Just briefly look down through the list with me for a second, and I'll come back. But in verse 2, he says, This miserable guy has, has much, but God has not empowered him. Notice that word empowered. God has not allowed him to enjoy that which he has. And also in verse 2, notice that a foreigner, someone who's not part of his family, not part of his clan, someone outside of his own family unit or friends is enjoying what he has accumulated. In verse 3, he says uh, that uh, this individual cannot enjoy life. He says, but his soul is not satisfied with good things. There's no satisfaction that he's finding here. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says, here we look going down to verse 6, that he does not enjoy good things. Now remember, he has good things, but he does not enjoy good things. In verse 9, he is never satisfied. What, his eyes, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. Never satisfied. In verse 12, his life is virtually meaningless under the sun. So that's an overview of what we're going to look at. Let's go back then to the verse, verses 1 and 2. And we have to ask this question, what did this man do that made him so miserable? Why is it that God has allowed this individual to be so completely miserable? 
Did he, did he murder somebody? Has he robbed from the poor? Has he taken advantage of widows? Has he done awful things like that? There's no indication in the text that that's the case. His problem is not that. His problem is this. He is expecting stuff and prosperity and things to deliver what they were never designed to deliver. And as a result of that, he is miserable. He is chasing after the wind, as Solomon says over and over. He's chasing something that cannot be grasped because he believes the wrong thing about prosperity and so forth. Now in the first six verses of this chapter, he, uh, Solomon highlights two miseries that are experienced by someone who doesn't get that principle, who believes somehow that uh, happiness and, and prosperity and and joy and fulfillment is found in their accumulation of stuff, they will end up with one of two miseries, maybe both. First of all, emptiness. Look at verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing at all that he desires. Now notice, let's stop there for a moment. Notice this man is wealthy. He has everything that most people could possibly want. And he seems to be a self-made man. At least he thinks he's a self-made man. He thinks he's accomplished this himself. But the text makes it very clear. God has given him these things. God is the one who has allowed him to be wealthy at this point. So there we have. Go, go on further. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. By God's grace, this man possesses everything that he could possibly imagine that he wants, but he has a couple problems. First of all, God has not given him the ability to enjoy these things. This is a key principle throughout our passage. It's a key principle throughout life. The enjoyment of life, get this, has nothing to do with what you own. It has everything to do with the gift that God gives you of enjoyment of life. That will be his principle throughout. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5 where he led into this, he says concerning that, he says, furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given the riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to, enjoy, to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. The ability to enjoy what you have is a gift from God. It is not something we manufacture. This man is missing that agenda. Now here's the second problem that he has. In his effort to gain things, he has lost that which really matters. You notice this man is alone. He has accumulated a great deal of stuff, but he doesn't enjoy them, and neither does his family enjoy them. From all we can tell, he has no family. He has no one to share his joy with. A foreigner is going to take this stuff, someone he doesn't know. He, he doesn't have anybody to enjoy this with in his incessant desire to be wealthy and accomplished. He has lost that which matters in life, the love of people and companionship with friends. Now let me say this, you don't have to be a Christian, and some of you may not be a Christian here today, I don't know, but you don't have to be a Christian to understand this. The world gets this. The world understands this, that this insensible desire to have all this stuff does not lead to true happiness. If you don't believe me, watch the Hallmark Channel. Okay? If you don't believe me, watch the movies coming out here uh, in, at Christmas time. Almost every novel, almost every book, almost every play, almost every movie, uh, 
that deals with these kinds of things comes up with the same thing. Now notice, for example, two movies that most people will watch it this season is The Christmas Story with Scrooge. Scrooge had everything, right? And he was absolutely miserable. And it's only later in life when he starts giving his money away and starts developing a family and friends that he ever finds happiness. That's a storyline. The world gets that. Watch A Wonderful Life, as many of you will do, and you'll find the same thing. Here was a guy named George Bailey, who he, he wasn't after money. The most miserable guy in the story was a rich guy. But George wasn't after money. He wanted to travel. He, he, he was unhappy with his lot in life, and he thought happiness was found somewhere else. And it took that wonderful life, night in his life, to make him realize he was a, had a wonderful life, and it was all wrapped around people, not about things and money. They, people get this, folks. Now, I don't know how many of you are Hallmark channel watchers. I hope it, we watched a couple recently. It's about all I can handle for the season. But, uh, but you know in the first scene how it's going to end, don't you? You always start with some miserable person who's after money and after their career, blah, 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 always living in the city. And they always end up leaving that behind, going to the country, falling in love, and the story ends happily ever after. So you don't have to watch any more of those movies. I've just told you what 300 of them do. Just there. And if you want to argue with me about that, prove your case. Okay? At any rate, the point, my point is that the world gets it. The world knows that life is not found in prosperity. It's not found in chasing after success. The world knows that, that, that these do not bring happiness, but uh, that there are more important things that are lost in the process of chasing after wealth. And so this man is miserable because of that. Let's go to the second guy, chapter 6, verse 3. And this is the second great misery, and that's disappointment. Disappointment. This is, a, this is probably a different man because he has children. Boy, does he have children. If a man fathers a hundred children, woo, and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, he does not even, own, even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than him. Here is a man who uh, has many children. Matter of fact, his life is not all wrapped around money. We get the idea he's very wealthy, but he also has a wonderful family. Many, many children. Of course, Solomon is exaggerating here on purpose, of course, to get his point across. Here's a man who's got not only the wealth, but he's got a big family wrapped around him. And he's living to be old. How many people think the, the epitome of life is getting old? You know, getting older and living a long time. By the way, ask old people about that. And they may not agree with that scenario. But that's another story for another day. But nevertheless, this guy lives a very long time. That seems to be what most people want. But yet, he is still miserable. Going down to verse 4, for he comes in futility and, and goes in, into obscurity, and his name is covered in obscurity. He never sees the sun and never knows anything. He's better off than a man, than that man. Even if, an, uh, if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to the same place. He uses a very sad story of a, of a baby that doesn't come to see the light of day. And yet he says that baby is better off than this man because it never had the misery and the, and the disappointment and the, and the sadness of life. Never experienced that. But this man has. He's lost it all. Lost it all. He's missed it all. He's experienced misery and not joy. Okay, that's the end of lesson number one. Here comes the test. Are you ready? If I were to ask you what was the point of lesson number one, could you write something down that gives the essence of that 
point. Well, I'm going to help you because I realize you're looking at me like deers in the headlight. Is, is he going to make us turn these papers in or what's he going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to let you cheat here. I'm going to give you the answer. In case you missed it, here it comes. Concerning this first lesson, you can have, you can have as gifts from God prosperity, honor, longevity, and a loving family and still be miserable if you don't have the gift of God to enjoy life. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, why is that true? Why don't things satisfy? What is missing? And so over the rest of the chapter, he wants to unpack that. And he gives us two reasons why things don't satisfy, even family doesn't satisfy, long life doesn't satisfy. There's something missing in all these things. He gives us two reasons why that is true and why these things could never satisfy. Number one, because of our leaky souls. Now, I invented that term. I don't know anybody else uses that or why they would. But I've been impressed recently by people talking about leaky guts. And that, to me, is just absolutely atrocious. Why anybody invented that is beyond my imagination. So if they can talk about that, I can talk about a leaky soul for a while, okay? So follow along with me as we look at these verses. And now, now I've got your mind off on something else. I'm sorry about that. I think I take a drink of water here. Okay, verse 7, he says this, All man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Now he's starting to talk here. I want you to look at this word appetite. All a man's labor, verse 7, for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that says that word could mean or should mean, it literally means soul. It could be translated either way, but souls don't have, appetites don't have souls. Souls have appetites. And so I think the better translation is actually soul here. And he's saying that that we're given an appetite or a soul that cannot be satisfied. So I'm going to call it a leaky soul. We're created with leaky souls. Now, when Adam and Eve were created, their souls did not leak. They could find full satisfaction and contentment in what they had. But when they fell... And sin came along, sin knocked a hole into their soul that now causes all humanity that has followed to leak when it comes to satisfaction. And therefore, there's no way the soul can be fully satisfied. It's kind of like a bucket. Think of a bucket that has a hole in it. So maybe you have a sprinkling can at home that you sprinkle your flowers with, but somebody's knocked a hole in the bottom. Well, you can, no matter how much water you put in it, it's going to leak out, isn't it? But, but also, at the same time, it will hold water for a while. You might even be able to water a few flowers before it leaks out, but ultimately, it leaks out. That's the picture we have here. We have leaky souls, we have damaged souls, we have holes in our souls, and as a result of that, our appetites are never satisfied. Now, I want you to go back with me to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, and one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. This verse is so powerful because uh, it is a verse that is very, a very description of humanity. If I had to pick out one verse in all the Old Testament that described humanity and its real problem, this is the verse I'd go to. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Everybody ought to re- memorize this verse. They ought to know this verse. 
Here's what it says. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. Notice the picture here. God's people here, Jeremiah's prophesying to Israel, to Judah actually, and he says they've committed two evils. You have forsaken, first of all, the fountain of living water. That's a picture that's found all the way through the Old Testament and the New. Christ proclaiming himself that spring of life and the Holy Spirit as such. And he says, look, they've forsaken me. They've forsaken this ever-flowing, never-exhausted fountain of water so that they cannot find satisfaction in life and they cannot find true life. But they, they can't live that way. People can't live that way. And therefore, they have to find something to fill up their souls. What is that? Well, they develop broken cisterns. They, they, they dig wells for themselves. Cisterns that will hold water for a little bit, but they leak. And when they when they're, have leaked out, something else must replace those cisterns. The new cistern has to be dug. And so that's the picture of life. People who have abandoned the fountain of living waters will spend all their lives digging cisterns of one kind or the other that they're looking for satisfaction in. Those cisterns may hold water for a little bit. Satisfaction is found for a while, and, but they leak, and then we have to replace them with something else, and that becomes the, the merry-go-round of life, trying to find something that satisfies, all because the fountain of living water has been abandoned. What a verse. That's exactly what Solomon is talking about as we go back to our passage of Scripture. He is warning that, that the more we fill our cup up with anything under the sun except for Christ, except for the Lord, the more we crave. You can never have enough stuff. You can never have enough experiences. You can never have enough relationships. You can never have enough uh, successes to satisfy the hunger of your soul Never. And that is true, verse 8, whether you're rich or in the back, bottom of verse 8, whether you're poor. And in verse 9, he says, what the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. He says, you're better off looking at what you have than wanting something more. And yet that too, he says, is futility and striving after the wind because that does not satisfy either. What a mess they're in. When we... We're always wanting something more, and we don't appreciate what we have. Look at verse, look at that verse nine. He says, uh, he says, this too is futility and striving after the wind. Our outward, outward things can never satisfy our insatiable appetites. That's the answer to lesson number two. Our out, outward things, no matter what they are, can never fill the hole in our souls. Never. It's not planned that way. And again, the world gets this. I mean, people everywhere, all over the planet, they get this. This is not something you have to be a Christian to understand. You know it by experience. Some years ago, a movie came out called Cool Runnings with John Candy. John Candy was a, was a Olympian gold medalist in this show in bobsledding. And he would become the coach of the Jamaican bobsledding team. There's not a lot of bobsledding teams in Jamaica, if you don't know. But he would be the coach for their first attempt at the Olympics. It was an interesting story. But what, what turned on this is that he had won a gold medal. But after winning the gold medal the next time, he cheated in order to try to win another one. 
and he was disgraced and his team was disgraced. When the Jamaican team found out that he had cheated, they were amazed. Why would he do that? And so one of the bobsledders asked him, he said to him, why, you've already won a gold medal, why would you cheat to get another one? And Candy said as the coach, he says, I had to win because I learned something. If you're not happy without a gold medal, you won't be happy with one either. There's the lesson of life. This is not a Christian show. This is just a show that shows experience. You, what you ha if you're not happy with what you have, you will not be happy if you have more. That's lesson number two that he gives us here. Lesson number three, we're not going to leave you in a sad mode today. Go back to chapter 5, verse 18. We touched on this last week, but we're going to, we're going to go back to it and look at it closer right now. What he's done so far, matter of fact, before you go there, please once again go to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 11, and remember what we said last week about the golds and the nails. This is the key of the book. In verse 11, chapter 12, the words of wise men are like goads. Now remember the goads are those long pointed sticks that poked at the oxen to keep them moving. And the words of a wise man which he's talking about in this book, his words of wisdom, are those that poke us forward, that push us in a direction. Where is it pushing us? It's pushing us towards the well-driven nails of that same verse that are given by one shepherd. These goads, these, this, all this dissatisfaction, all this emptiness of life that, that people experience are, are designed to push us towards something. It's designed to push us towards the well-driven nails, the, the, found, the, the foundation of truth found in what the shepherd Christ himself has given us. And so that's where he's taking us now. And our third lesson then is the way of satisfaction. There is a way of satisfaction. It's found in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. You're probably familiar with the most famous quote ever given by Augustine or, or Augustine, where he sums up the life in this way. The heart is restless until it finds rest in God. The heart is restless until it finds rest in God. That's probably the, uh, the, the theme of this whole book, actually. Complete satisfaction cannot be found in anything on this planet. It must come from the hand of God and ultimately in eternity. So I want to take a little sidestep for a moment. And don't, I don't want anybody going away saying, you know what, if, if we apply all these principles and other teachings of scripture that we will find in this life full and complete and total contentment and satisfaction. Because my friends, that awaits another day. That awaits everlasting life. That awaits eternity in the new heaven and new earth. No one on this planet has ever been fully content except Jesus Christ on this planet. But well, we can get a lot closer than we think we, than most of us are right now. And the reason why is because there are things the Lord has laid out for us that he wants us to live. The Lord doesn't want us to live miserable lives. He doesn't want us to be people that are always wringing our hands and in anxiety and worry and, and, uh, and de depression. He doesn't want us to live that way. But he's designed life to lead us in a direction. And I want to show you here, he gives to those who follow him three gifts and these gifts fill up our lives in ways that nothing else can. Number one 
is a good and beautiful life in verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him for this is his reward. God has given life to enjoy. He wants us to be fulfilled, satisfied people. The word for beautiful, for uh, fitting here could be and often is translated beautiful. So the Lord wants to give us a beautiful life, a life that is fitting under the sun. He wants that life for us. You know, most of us live our lives, don't we, just doing ordinary things? We go to work, we go to school, we eat, we drink, we, we play, we do whatever, we do ordinary things. Are all those things a waste of time? Unless you're doing something directly in ministry, are you wasting time? Uh, obviously not, or the Lord wouldn't created us to have all these other things to do and have to do in life. But at the same time, he's saying, look, you can derive tremendous value, comfort, and satisfaction in the simple things of life. That's a gift from God. Now, people want to pervert this, and this is our problem. People want to take God's gift of sex and turn it into immorality. People want to take the gift of food and turn it into gluttony. People want to take the gift of sleep and turn it into laziness. People want to take the gift of work and turn it into an idol. People want to take money and become selfish with it. All these things, however used as God intended for them to be used, are good and beautiful and give wonderful qualities to our lives. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people don't appreciate that. And the vast majority of people think life is a bore or full of anxiety or, or heaviness or drudgery. And God never intended that our lives be like that. And so he has, in verse 18, a reward for those certain people. But let's press on. Gift number two. God provides the capacity to enjoy life. Verse 19, he provides the capacity to enjoy life. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. Without this gift, no matter what you own, no matter who you love, no matter who loves you, No matter where you work, no matter how much you make, no matter how successful you become, you will not enjoy the life that God wants you to enjoy. You will not and you cannot because God has not designed life to be lived that way. You will no doubt have happy moments, but in the long run you will find life unfulfilling and empty the thought of this verse is that it not, is not that God gives wealth, he does, but that he gives us the ability to enjoy what he's given us, to appreciate our position in life, to find fulfillment in our work and in our pursuits. Someone who is a, an observer of humanity wrote these words. I don't know if he's a Christian. He said, if you observe a really happy man, you will find him building a boat, writing a song, educating his son, growing uh, flowers in his garden, uh, taking a walk. He will not be searching for happiness as if it were a collar button that is rolled under the radiator. He will have become aware that he is happy in the course of living 24 crowded hours of the day. 
Happiness is not something we pursue directly. Happiness is a gift from God for those that meet the conditions that he has here. And that leads us to gift number three, which is the, the main point of the whole message this morning. The ability to enjoy the now. God gives us the ability to enjoy right now, the present. Verse 20, he says, For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. It's great to be able to enjoy life, but if we're always thinking about the good old days, if we're always worried about the future, if we're always concerned that life is going to turn sour, then we'll not appreciate the now, the gift of life right now. And our life will be full of anxiety and incompleteness. God wants to give us the gift of living joyfully right now, in the present, rather than, saying, than, than living a life that's always anticipating something else that has to happen to give us life. Now here's the secret. How can you live this way? Here's the secret. You cannot be living for that which will pass away. You get it? How can you have this kind of life? You cannot be living for that which will pass away. Happiness, health, wealth, fun, possessions, even the ability to enjoy food will come and go in your life according to the circumstances. But there's one thing that you can live for that will never change, that will never pass away, that you can permanently enjoy, and that is God himself. Now I want you to look at verse 20, and you ought to write this in your Bible. If you write in your Bible, I do. The, probably the greatest Old Testament scholar in the world today is a guy named Walt Kaiser. Kaiser is he's way up there. In this verse of Scripture, he says a better translation of that line is this. Now this is coming from a man that knows his Hebrew backwards and forwards. He's a great scholar. He said that it's translated in the New American Standard, God keeps him occupied with gladness. Kaiser said it should be translated this way, God himself keeps him occupied. Now, did you catch that? In other words, God keeps us occupied on him. The one thing that cannot change. The one thing that cannot pass away. God keeps us occupied with himself. It's a great translation. It's a great understanding. Now to, but, to, to, to go further on that, go back to Lamentations chapter 3 with me, verse 24. I think I took you to this passage of Scripture a few weeks ago when I was preaching on the Bible, the use of the Scriptures. And last week, if you went to small groups, you, you were supposed to turn to this Scripture. I trust, trust many of you did. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. People love it, of course. We all love it. But in the shadow of two or three unbelievable promises of God, something gets lost. The, the, the unbelievable promises start with verse 21, where it says that we have hope. In verse 22, when it speaks of the loving kindnesses of God himself. In verse 22, where it says that, that those loving kindnesses never cease, and his compassions never fail. And then in verse 23, that great is his faithfulness. Those are monuments of promises based upon the character of God that all of us turn to and love on a regular basis, don't we? 
But lost in the shadow of those monuments is the next verse that in some ways ties it all together. Notice that next verse. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. Look at that word portion. The Lord is my portion. When the Lord becomes your portion, when the Lord becomes your everything, then all these other things come together. And our hope is in him. Our, our, our satisfaction is in him. Our, our life is in him. Because he is our portion. And tying that back in with our passage, he is the one that our, we are focused on. He, he is the one that we are occupied with. Not all this stuff out here. Those can all become extra things to give joy in our lives. But they don't make up life. And if you hang on any of those, you'll be disappointed. We can only trust in the one thing that cannot change. And that's him, himself. And now we understand maybe better Psalm 37, 4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. When you're delighting in the Lord, what is your desires? The Lord. If the Lord is your desire, how can you go wrong? Because he never changes, and he never lets us down, and he never fails. Test number three, what is the conclusion of all this? How would you sum up all we said this morning? Once again, let me help you. Give me, let me give you one line that I hope you can take home and meditate on, and that is this. The capacity to enjoy life is a gift from God and can be found nowhere else but in Him. Get it? The capacity to enjoy life is a gift from God and can be found nowhere else but in Him. Kaiser, once again, summing up this passage, says, How sad that people can spend all their, life, all their days working and sweating to receive enjoyment that God offers as a gift if we seek will seek it in the manner that he, in his excellent and beautiful plan, has chosen to give it. What could be better than that? Well, let me tell you one thing could be better than that. Jesus would take it one step further and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I have come to give you life and to give it abundantly. In other words, true life, and all we've said today, and everything we've said is from the word of God, and everything is true, but we have to go one more step. Do you know the one who gives life? Do you know the giver of life? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to give you life as a gift? Not as a work, not as, not as something we figure out, but as a gift. If you don't know the Savior, you don't know life because he is the life giver. He is the fountain of, li of, of, of life that only he can give us that life. We don't come to him because we want a blessed life on this planet. We come to him because he gives us eternal life now and forever. Bless his name. Father, we thank you now for this passage of scripture. I know it's a tough one. I know there's a lot of places here that we scratch our head. But Lord, I trust we've unpacked it well enough to understand what you're saying to us. And Lord, I pray now for each person here that we will go home more focused on you than ever before. As we think about Christmas and the, and the gift of giving, that we'll think about the ultimate, most perfect of all gifts that comes from you to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.